Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well, conversations with creative people who have a lot to say. And as we approach our 300th episode, it's likely we'll be hearing again from some of our favorite people. One such person is William Martin, known as the king of the historical thriller. He's gotten rave reviews for so many of his wonderful books. From the early days, Cape Cod, Back Bay, Harvard Yard, to Citizen Washington, The Lost Constitution, The Lincoln Letter, and Bound for Gold. Well, he's at it again, and he's hit another home run. William Martin presents December 41, about that fateful month when America was plunged into war after Pearl Harbor. And Bill has a fictional account that feels so darn real of a Nazi plot to assassinate FDR on Christmas Eve. If you're ready for the thriller of the year, this is it. So I can't wait to chat with my good friend Bill Martin and share the conversation with you as we invite Mr. Martin, the author of December 41, to join us now on Mike. Gosh, uh, we're doing it again, and I'm so excited. You and I talked a while back, and you promoted the fact or previewed the fact that your December 41 book was coming out, and I said, this one I have to have as soon as I can before anybody else. Thank you. It's fantastic. Well, it's great to be here, Jordan. Great to be talking with you again. A book doesn't get properly published until I've sat down with Jordan Rich. I appreciate that. It's an honor, sir. William Martin's December 41. Um, so much to talk about. First of all, your connection with and love of Hollywood plays into this. So yep. We'll get to that. But let's talk about the actual historical events that were going on. We all know about December 7th, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Right. Germany declares war right after that. We declare war on them. And we're approaching Christmas 1941 in Washington. What's mm-hmm. going on? Christmas of 1941 uh, is, as the CBS radio announcer that Christmas Eve will say, one of the most solemn Christmases in American history, as indeed it is, Uh, because uh, as Christmas approaches, we are losing on all fronts. Uh, The Japanese are dominant in the Pacific. Their their attack on Pearl Harbor has just been the predecessor to uh, uh, a sweeping offensive throughout the whole far Pacific. And we haven't made any headway as yet. We're still shaking off the shock. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we now realize as well that we're going to fight a two-front war against two amazingly uh, militarized nations. Uh, Because Germany jumps right in that first week, as you've just said. Uh, And Franklin Roosevelt has decided that he is going to make good on a promise that he had made the previous year, which is that uh, he's going to light the national Christmas tree, as he always does, on the night before Christmas. And this year, it's not going to be out on the ellipse, where it usually is. The tree will be on the south lawn of the White House itself, and they will allow... Uh, an audience of some 20,000 onto the South Lawn. And all of this is over the protestations of the Secret Service and, uh, and of the military authorities as well that have taken over the defense of the White House. And Franklin Roosevelt believes that this will be a symbol of our continuity and of our strength, and he's going to do it. Now... He also has to contend that night with the fact that he's going to have a house guest. The house guest has just arrived a few days earlier, uh, 
after a week of travel from England, and his name is Winston Churchill. And there is an extraordinary bit of video that you can look at if you go on to YouTube. I did. Uh, I did, of course. uh, An intimate camera angle showing Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill uh, on the on the south portico of the White House on Christmas Eve, and you can hear both of their speeches, and you can almost feel the tension, the the sense of resolve, the desire to get on with business that these two men Mm. uh, are going to be engaged in over the next few days as they hammer out in that uh, last two weeks of December, as they hammer out the grand strategy uh, that will eventually take down the Nazi empire and imperial Japan. The source material, besides the fact that you come up with these phenomenal ideas based on real stories, real history, uh, Riley, I believe his name is, yes. Secret Service, Yes, his writings, mm-hmm. right? Well, the novel is going to be uh, a World War II thriller about... A German agent who's on the loose in the United States who is charged with the assignment of shooting Franklin Roosevelt the night he lights the Christmas tree. And, of course, he's going to find out when he opens the newspaper on uh, December 22nd, uh, December 23rd, 1941, that Churchill's there, too. He can get them both. Right. And uh, that's the fictional part. That's the, uh, the, the, the thriller aspect of this story. But in order for me to justify uh, a plot like that, I need to feel that, well, it didn't happen, as all of us know, but it could have happened. Mm. Uh, and it was a possibility. And so I, after I got the idea... Uh, of the of of this book, which actually I got from a movie. I was watching the movie The Darkest Hour with uh, Gary Oldman as Churchill, and in the middle of the movie, uh, he has the phone conversation with Roosevelt in May of 1940, and uh, uh, Roosevelt says, "I can't help you. Political situation in the United States will not allow me to give you any more help than I'm giving you." And Gary Oldman is crushed. You know, the mm. British are headed to Dunkirk. Everything's about to fall apart for the British. And uh, as I was watching that scene, I thought, these two guys are going to be together in a year and a half in the White House. And they're going to be there at Christmas. And they're going to... What What would the Germans not give to have mm. the chance to get them both? So anyway, that was how the plot first emerged. But when you write a novel like this, you need to start reading right away uh, in order to find the historical underpinnings for the drama, the fictional drama. Because you as a writer will need to have a sense of, um, of historical reality in order to create your sense of dramatic reality for the readers. So I read a book called Riley of the White House, a very obscure book that came out uh, f- about 1948. I found a copy of it in a, a local library, college library, and in it, uh, Mike Riley, who was FDR's uh, 
chief of security on the Secret Service staff, his elbow man, as it was called, mm. because he was always the president's elbow. Because, you know, FDR, in addition to being a target simply because he was president, was an, an even easier target because he was in a wheelchair. Right. Um, Riley talks about the security concerns in that first few weeks. And they, in the Army, were worried that a paramilitary group might attack the White House and try to take out the American leadership. They were legitimately worried about this. There White, was, another movie comes to mind that's kind of silly, White House Down, I think it was right, called. Right, there are a couple of them more recently. Right. But in 1941, 50 caliber machine guns went up onto the roof of the White House the day of the bombing in Pearl Harbor. Well, Bill, most of us, uh, all of us listening who are old enough remember 2001 and what mm -hmm. happened in terms of security that was just immediately beefed up. No one knew what was next. That was the same kind of feeling back then. It had to have been. Oh, yeah, it was. Um, there was security everywhere. All of the Washington hotels uh, suddenly had bomb shelters. Uh, there was discussion in the White House about painting over the skylights, painting the White House itself black. Um, Roosevelt, they ran drills to see how quickly they could get a wheelchair from uh, hmm. the White House, where there was no real bomb shelter and FDR wasn't interested in one, down into a tunnel and across to the Treasury where Henry Morgenthau had told FDR that he could hide in the vault if there was a German, oh, a German bombing. And, of course, FDR kind of laughed him off. But there, there was worry of, about paramilitary groups and about attacks by German intercontinental bombers, which sure. they didn't even have. Right. And, um, and Mike Riley in that book says, my real worry was the lone assassin or the small team that would try to manipulate or take advantage of FDR's uh, schedule in order to take a shot. And once I read that, I said, okay, if they were worried about this then, this is a legitimate avenue to go down as a storyteller. There are so many characters floating around. We won't get to them all, but they're, they're all interwoven brilliantly, as you mm -hmm. do in every one of your novels. But the FBI plays a part early on before this, uh, following the ongoing activities of the German-American Bund. Right. And you have them in Los Angeles, again, back to Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, we'll connect that yeah. dot. Describe what was happening in the country then. I mean, it was America first, stay out of the war before Pearl Harbor. Right. And there was activity, no question. We, we all know the Madison Square Garden uh, scene that's, that's on YouTube. You can see it. Mm -hmm. Pretty scary stuff before yes. Pearl Harbor. Yes. Well, you know, it's one of the strengths of America is that it is an open society and uh, many ideas uh, can be injected into the public debate and um, allowed to be proven sure. good ideas or bad ideas. And that was the case back in the 1930s too where uh, there was a, a great um, leaning toward fascism. Because, of course, it was a period of tremendous economic dislocation. Nobody had ever contended with a depression. And one of the answers to depression, to a, an economic depression, is autocracy. Mm. And finding 
uh, people to blame for the economic depression. Mm -hmm. And all of that was going on, of course, in Europe, where the rise of the dictators had gone on during that period. America had turned in 1933 to uh, FDR, uh, uh, who was um, a man of – who would try anything in order to – to defeat the depression and um, running in parallel to the rise of FDR during the 1930s was the, the, the rise of a, a sense of um, fascism as possibly the way for us to lean as well. And that came out of the enormous presence of, um, I can't think of the number now of how many People at that point traced their uh, ancestry back to Germany. Huge, the huge people, number in America. Yeah, people who were looking back <clears throat> at the, uh, the the rising success, the economic success of uh, of Nazi Germany, and saying, you know, they're really doing well. You know? Well, plus you had and, people like the national hero Charles Lindbergh, and, who was right. very much proponent of. He actually seemed to side with a lot of what was going on, and many people did at that point. Oh, that's but, true. Um, Lindbergh went to Germany. He was he was accepted as a as a, a great hero, an aviator. Uh, Goering, the head of the German Luftwaffe and Hitler's mm. number two, showed Lindbergh around, and, the, and Lindbergh was just saying, "Wow, what an air force you have!" and so forth. Of course, the Germans had built this air force. Uh, in violation of the uh, Versailles treaties, but we wouldn't we wouldn't worry about that. And Lindbergh came back filled with admiration for this new, disciplined, organized, and highly efficient German society. And he started spreading uh, that gospel around America. There was a group, uh, and I didn't realize it existed, but I looked, up, of course, through the book and the, the afterward and all the great stuff you noted. In Los Angeles, in the Hollywood area that might have existed elsewhere, a Jewish uh, community yep. uh, committee that was designed to sort of track these Nazis. Yes. And one of the reasons, as you point out, it's because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in mm-hmm. government circles, State Department, FBI, and so forth. Right, right. That was interesting. So, so the key, the, one of the key elements of... Uh, uh, 1930s fascism is anti-Semitism. When I say blame the other, it's you oh. know, blame the Jewish, of course, uh, what they called the Jewish race. And uh, the reason that there was so, well, Southern California is always an attractive place for all kinds of strange cults and things to begin. But in the 1930s, uh, the Germans of the East, uh, the first and second generation Germans who had organized the Bund in, uh, in the New York area that ran that, that huge rally that you've just alluded to. Yeah, the Madison to Square Garden. In Madison so. Square Garden. Uh, well, they, they knew that they were being watched pretty closely by the FBI in the East, but out in Southern California, nobody was really paying attention to them. So they were able to have themselves a nice Bund Hall, a -hmm. German social club, uh, at Figueroa and 15th in downtown Los Angeles, uh, right on the site of today's Staples Center. And that Bund Hall contained a store called the Aryan Bookstore. It contained uh, an auditorium where... 
uh, every uh, April, I think it's 22nd, whatever, whenever Hitler's birthday is, they would put up pictures of the Fuhrer and mm. march around and sing songs in his, uh, in his honor. And there was also a restaurant called the Gaststube where you could get German food. And, you know, this was a real outpost not only of uh, of German culture and a love of German history, but also an outpost of uh, Nazism. And out of that place was flowing a lot of uh, potentially dangerous activities. They wanted to, at one point, to break open the armories up and down the West Coast, National Guard armories, take the weapons, put those weapons into the hands of disaffected Americans who, uh, like, say, the bonus marchers of, of the uh, 1920s, uh, were military men, had been trained, hadn't gotten the, their just desserts from World War I. These were the kind of guys that we can reach out to to bring into our group. And so the, the Los Angeles Jewish Community Committee, as it was called, was formed by World War I Jewish veterans in L.A. who looked around and said, there's some really dangerous people running around here, and the LAPD isn't tracking them, and the FBI uh, is more interested in communists, because they were in the 20s and 30s, far more interested in communists, mm -hmm. and um, uh, we just need to keep an eye on them. The Office of Naval Intelligence, which was the main military uh, military intelligence organization at that time, didn't really have the the capacity yeah. or the or the, the financial. Well, support. at the same time, um, you've got the attacks on shipping from U-boats. Yeah, this is before we're in the war, and you know a lot of stuff is happening, and a lot of fear mm. that Roosevelt and his team probably felt. But certainly uh, the, the average citizen who was concerned enough to get involved, like the hero, one of the heroes in the book, a Boston guy. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and he's a Hollywood guy. Let me tie in a few things. It's so much to talk about. Won't give away anything except to say that it's the Manchurian Candidate times 10, in my opinion. I love oh, this. I love it. Thank you. The, the Hollywood That's connection. Good, you, good company. Yeah, no, you, you really knocked it out of the park. The um, Hollywood connection involves a guy who's a script reader. Right. Kevin, right? Yes. Kevin. He's Kevin, from Boston. Yes. Of course. <laughs> but he's in, he's in California. What, what's his role? What's his job? Kevin, Kevin Cusack is the character, and um, he uh, is of Irish ancestry, and uh, his mother, on his mother's side, German and Jewish. So he's got, uh, he's, he is the American melting pot in a mm -hmm. way. And he goes to California, and uh, the best he can do is just to get a job as a script reader uh, for a dollar twelve an hour. That was what they paid the script readers then, and now it's one of the entry level positions in the movie business. Uh, you read the material, the many scripts that are being written on speculation, the many scripts and novels that are being written back in New York and Boston. You're the one that reads them. So that's his job. And he gets very frustrated in Hollywood. He can't work his way up. Somewhere along the line, he meets the head of the Los Angeles Jewish Community Committee who recruited Gentiles, mm. who didn't—he he didn't look for uh, necessarily Jewish 
uh, people to infiltrate the Bund. He needed... What would you know, make sense yeah, if you're exactly. going undercover. Right, yeah. right. And so Kevin uh, accepts the, uh, the challenge to infiltrate the Bund in Los Angeles. And that puts him into the information stream that is eventually going to put him into, into contact with the bad guy. He's reading a script that yeah. becomes pivotal in movie history. Uh, and I, I'd love the way you tied this in. Yeah, he, he's reading a script that's also one of your favorites, I know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and this is based on fact. At Warner, he, the guy works at Warner Brothers, which was the first studio to start uh, sending movies around the world that were critical of the Nazis. Mm. Because, you know, the Germans actually in Los Angeles had a... Um, uh, a consul they, who who would who would watch the movies and say you better not you better cut that out. Right, it's fascinating. There was a, there was a book or two written about just this the yeah. censorship uh, and the fact that the, most of the moguls were Jewish and right. and it, they were afraid to tick off the Nazis because of the economic uh, oh yeah boom yeah. that they were getting yeah. the huge market in Germany even even though that Bund that we're talking about in Southern California one of the plots that they hatched. That the L.A. the Los Angeles Jewish Community Committee would crack uh, was to a plot to kidnap Jack Warner, Louis B. Mayer, Harry Cohn, no grab them all on the way to work, and take them up to a place uh, in the mountains above L.A. called Hindenburg Park oh. and hang them all. Jeez. That was actually discussed, and uh, one of the insiders. Uh, from the LAJCC spread that word and it got back to the FBI. It, it all fell apart. But they had some crazy plans. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Kevin Cusack is going to be with all in, involved with the Bund and with Warner Brothers. And on the day after Pearl Harbor, December 8th, 1941, I have the scene in the book uh, of all of the readers sitting around the table listening to FDR's declaration of war. And they're looking at the table to see what new scripts have come in. And one of them is a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's, which, of course, is... And it's just been sent out from New York. Uh, it is going to become Casablanca. <clears throat> now, the, this is actually true. There was a reader who sat down with it on December 8th uh, and on December 11th, submitted his, uh, I think, 10-page report where he offers opinion and gives the plot and gives suggestions as to how it would be cast. And um, uh, that particular character left the movies and kind of disappears from history. Uh, but I said, this will be a perfect movie for my guy to be reading in that first week of the story. Yeah. Because, you know, the story is divided into three sections. Um, Los Angeles, the trip across America, and Washington, D.C. It's kind of a, a three-act structure that just establishes itself for you right away. Uh, it's December. Uh, what time is it in New York? I just yes, remember that line that Bogey right. throws. Mm -hmm. Everything about that sequence in the book made me smile. It was yeah. great. Yeah. So I want to talk with you about the villains and about the structure of the writing without mm -hmm. without again giving away any of the I mean there are just things that happen and people that uh, things happen too that are just great yeah 
the the main villain has to have been fun to write. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. and he's got multiple aliases, mm-hmm. but the connector between all of the aliases is people say he looks like Leslie Howard. Now, yes. you and I know who Leslie yeah. Howard is. Yeah. Your readers will know. Mm-hmm. But for the uninitiated, he was a dashing, blonde, almost Aryan-looking dude, yep. Yep. very British, who, of course, Ashley Wilkes and Gone with the Wind. Everybody yes. knows that. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That Everybody says, oh, he looks like uh, Leslie <laughs> Howard. That's right. Well, you know, um, this book, and, and as you're I'll hold it up to the microphone. Yeah, there it folks. is. You can see you can see that the cover is in black and white because uh, the people at the publishers got what I was going for, yeah, which yeah. was a sense that you are sitting down here to watch a 1940s movie, yeah. a black and white movie about all of these people who are going to shimmer up on the silver screen and they're going to they're going to talk and movie stuff. It's got everything but Robert Cummings dangling off the uh, right, the Statue right. of Liberty. Yeah. Good good reference. <laughs> Thank I, you. I watched that movie. I, uh, you know, I watched yeah. the, the Hitchcock thrillers of the early 40s it, while I was perfect, writing this. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, because I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture um, the, the sense of the, the, the train journey across America, which is in the book, uh, was another aspect of 1940s filmmaking, storytelling, get characters on a train or any public convey- mm. conveyance, mm-hmm. and you're going to have some kind of action happen. But I actually envisioned uh, a movie actor playing each of these roles, a 1940s movie actor. And uh, it's the first time that I ever did this. Really? Yeah, I've never seen an actor before playing any role in any of my uh my well, uh, that that's news to me. So let me ask you. Besides the Leslie Howard reference, which is obvious, it's throughout. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just give me. Uh, there's a there's a femme fatale who's a tragic character, Vivian. Yeah, yep. who's a, a starlet hopeful wannabe. The young the young Marlena Dietrich. Oh well, yeah, because yeah, she's of German dis- extraction. She yes. should be. Yeah, wow. yeah. And uh, the really young Marlena Dietrich before uh, before she started. Penciling her eyebrows as, as, as when she was dating John Wayne, we find out. Right, right. Well, that that actually is true. That's in the book. Yeah, the, of course. The fact that John Wayne and Marlena Dietrich had a had a love affair. It's, it's great. It's that talk about uh, an unusual pairing, but it's absolutely true. But I, for example, uh, I see the young Tyrone Power as Kevin Cusack. And, Not a bad choice. Yeah, yeah. I would have gone with John Garfield, but I yeah. think that's perfectly yeah. right. I'll tell you who the modern-day villain is in my book as I'm reading it. Yeah. Modern-day actor who could pull it off is Benedict Cumberbatch. That's true. He'd I saw him in this role because it's a it's an icy, cold killer, yep. and yet he's got some issues with falling into a relationship. Yeah. It, it was a— very intriguing character. He's a well, you know, one of the ideas in the book is that um, this character is wrestling uh, with his commitment to uh, Germany, his commitment to the uh, the uh, the the German belief in the superiority of their race and uh, he's basically as he says fighting to save Germany and the world from Bolshevism as much as anything else and uh, he's he's not a character who has a certain sense of honor about him Mm. Uh, 
He violates it on a pretty regular basis, but it's how he first meets the girl. He rescues the girl from uh, an even worse right. situation than uh, she's going to be in, at least until Christmas Eve. I kept thinking so, about, uh, well, uh, the Black Dahlia, which is not part of the story, but those kinds of gals who came through the Hollywood system and were yeah. tossed around like chattel and, and really yeah. were abused and and just used and abused, and, mm -hmm. she, and she represents that in this story. That's right. Uh, but, you know, like all of the characters that he runs into, the, the characters mm -hmm. who are going to track this guy and finally bring him down before he pulls the trigger, and he almost pulls the trigger. I don't want to give too much away, right. but uh, uh, when... All of these characters are representations of American archetypes who are going to ultimately stop the rise of fascism. Well, I'm so know. glad you said that because uh, you, you sort of point that out in the afterward too, I believe. These are uh, all Americans of different stock coming together and none of them have hero emblazoned on their chest. Right. right. I mean they're all flawed. They're all mm – -hmm. but they all – step up at the yeah. one point or another and some of them step up and give up their lives to do so yes we won't tell which one no we of because, course not because there's the suspense you know when when you write a novel in which the history is foreordained uh you know for example in my book the lincoln letter when we walk into ford's theater yeah. that lincoln's going to get killed that night and you also know when you are running around the White House grounds and the Christmas carols are playing and the Marine Band, the brass is shimmering and so forth on Christmas Eve, as it does in this book. And, you know, I, I, I defy you to get to that, that page when, when all the characters are finally there and, and not read the rest of the book in one sitting. Um, you, you know Roosevelt's not going to get killed, but what's going to happen? And that's where this, my skill and experience for, oh, across 40 years of storytelling uh, has, to, has and, to come and forward. I, I want to raise one structural question with you because I'm amazed at how you and other fine novelists do this. Every other page has another scene with a different character setting. So in other words, you go from – in any particular, and the chapters are broken up into days, yeah. December twenty second, and you go from the villain's perspective, one of the villains, yeah. to another villain's perspective, to mm -hmm. uh, the female perspective, and they're all inter. So, without giving away trade secrets, do you must have a whiteboard the size of the Hollywood sign, yeah. or how do you do it? How do you keep everything straight? I'm just curious. Well, it depends on the book, and in this case, uh, it wasn't. It was all in my head. Uh, I never really did a whiteboard. I never did an extended outline of this mm, book. Wow. Uh, I knew – I mean some books, the, the plot is so obvious. The, the big events are so obvious that you signpost them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to have my book – this book is going to open with an FBI raid on a compound in Los Angeles, uh, a place – and we talk about this, a, a place that you can still visit in Los Angeles uh, mm -hmm. where the Nazis w w used to go and hide and, mm -hmm. you know, march and shoot targets and things like that. It's, the book's going to open there. We're going to have a train journey halfway through the book and we're going to end up on the White House lawn. And those are the narrative signposts. And once I get the characters into motion – 
uh, everything takes care of itself. It isn't easy, you know, because yeah. Yeah. You, you sometimes still surprise yourself by bringing on a new character who kind of gives the book an oomph because you're sitting there after so many months of writing and you're saying, we need something more here. That's how the character of, uh, since you've read the book, the character of Stella Madden comes on the mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. And she kind of takes over the book. You need her. Yeah. You need her. Um, other books that I've written are far more tightly uh, outlined simply because, say, in the case of Harvard Yard or Back Bay, I'm following a, an artifact through a long stretch of time. This book, there's a very tight three-week structure. Well, the the title is December 41, yeah. and that's one of those dates that will live in infamy, obviously, yes. quote-unquote. But that's one of those things that for anybody who's somewhat knowledgeable of basic history, that will ring true. We mm-hmm. all know what happened on the 7th, but it was a crazy month and it a crazy sure several months to follow. It sure was. You know, even, even Christmas, uh, and, and I don't— I don't talk too much about Christmas. I just talk about the Christmas dinner at the White House and um, uh, and the fact that FDR and Churchill go to church that morning. And Roosevelt says, uh, since Winston wasn't much of a churchgoer, he said, it would be good for Churchill, for, for Winston to sing with the Methodies. They go to a, the Meth- Methodies, a, the, right. a Methodist church up on 6th, uh, 16th Street. They had quite a, an interesting relationship. And Churchill spent a lot of time in the White House yes. over the war years, didn't he? Yes, and particularly in that first visit. He would come back many times, but the, the, don't forget, Britain was uh, on the ropes. Mm. They had fought off uh, the the German Air Force, and that had blunted Hitler's plans for invading England. Hitler decided, we don't need to worry about those guys. Let us turn on Russia. That's the big. That's the place we have to right. destroy. Right. So you know, in June of '41, they had invaded, and that night Churchill had given a fantastic speech on the radio in which he said, "I will never unsay a single word I have ever said about communism, but if Hitler invaded hell, I would find something good to say about the <laughs> devil." And uh, and you know, then the. England was a little bit better off after the Russians had suddenly taken the the blunt of the German power. And on on the night of December 7th, when he got the word, uh, he called FDR uh, and said, what's this I hear about Pearl Harbor? Franklin said, it's true. We are all in the same boat now. Mm. And as Churchill wrote, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. And the next morning, he got about the business of persuading church, uh, FDR to accept him as a house guest. He'll, he would come over right away. Uh, and FDR didn't particularly want him to come just yet because FDR was um, still concerned about the uh, American public opinion which was ferociously angry toward the Japanese, but, you know, let's leave the Germans, you know. Sure. Let's, let's conquer the guys who have actually taken a shot at us and then worry about them. FDR fully understood, however, that now that we were in it, uh, 
it was the, the Germans who would have to be taken down first. They were the more mm. powerful and organized society. They didn't have the navy that Japan had, but right. they had the army. And of course, for three days, everything was sort of in balance. There was a, everybody was wondering, you know, what is the United States going to do with Germany? And of course, Hitler took care of that because he said, we're, we're at war on a de facto basis anyway with Americans supplying the British with uh, American escort destroyers covering uh, British convoys. And so he came along and declared war against us instead. One more, one more note about the Churchill and Roosevelt Christmas Eve gathering. In, in, as we speak, as we record, uh, we know that there's a horrible war in the Ukraine, the Russians yes. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was today or yesterday when Nancy Pelosi and, and a bunch of Democratic congressmen showed up in Kiev. Yep. And Boris Johnson showed up in, and other world leaders. Uh, and everyone's impressed, and I think they should be. But mm-hmm. back then, you say it would take a week. You had to come over by ship for the right. most part, and you were under threat of uh, U-boat attack at every angle, at every step. Right. Well, Churchill, first of all, he hated to fly. He wasn't <laughs> going to fly. And a flight to the United States at that point would have uh, required a layover in Iceland or Greenland. or yeah. And he was told that he could be fogged in up there, given the weather in December, for days, if not weeks. And so he didn't want to do that. So he said, I'll go over on the uh, British battleship, the Duke of York, the new battleship. Mm -hmm. And he started off uh, across the Atlantic, stormy North Atlantic in December of any year. Uh, And as they approached what was known as the U-boat stream, the uh, the the parallel that that the German submarines traveled along as they left Brest and the other French uh, uh, ports and got out into the Atlantic, into their the places where they were stocking the... The nests, they call right. them, yeah. Uh, the, there was concern that the battleship was moving too fast for the little destroyers around it. And Churchill said, well, if that's the case, then let's just leave the destroyers behind and really go fast through this... Net, this thicket of German submarines, and that's what they did. And they developed a, a process by which, once they got out into the mid-Atlantic, where there were no submarines, uh, uh, that they could keep moving with the escort of destroyers, and every night one of the destroyers would uh, would drop back and take all of the messages that FDR, that, that Churchill wanted to send back to England, uh, and radio those from the middle of the Atlantic and not from the, the, uh, the side of the, the battleship, just right. so that the Germans wouldn't be able to locate where Churchill was. They weren't sure. Uh, they knew he was out of London, uh, but they wondered, is he, in, is he heading to North Africa to sit down with the uh, British command uh, currently fighting Rommel, or is he actually going to the United States? And they didn't think he was headed to the U.S., so it took him a week to get across on that battleship, uh, and he writes about it in his uh, his, his seven-volume book, uh, Memoirs About the War. Uh, he read books. He 
tried to stay in touch as best he could with with the Admiralty and the, the and Downing Street. They watched movies. Hmm. There's a story of him bringing every night he'd bring a bring uh, all of his aides and all of the officers into the wardroom to watch a movie. And one night they're watching uh, Errol Flynn and. Uh, Captain Blood, and he jumps up and says, "The British are winning. The British are winning." At the end, of, <laughs> at the end of the movie, and finally they got to they got to Norfolk, and the plan was that uh, that he would be met there by an American vessel, and they'd go up the Chesapeake, uh, and finally get to Washington uh, on Wednesday morning. And uh, he said, "I need to get there right away." And so FDR sent a plane on the mon- Monday night, uh, December 21st, um, down to Norfolk, picked up Rose uh, Churchill and his, uh, his support staff, and they flew up the Chesapeake. And Churchill writes, and so did, uh, so did his physician, about the awe that they felt when they flew toward Washington, looking out on either side and seeing lights, seeing a society that was still alive, mm. not hunkered down with its head covered to stop it, to protect itself from German bombs. The, the blackout hadn't fully uh, taken hold in the United States as it would at the beginning of January of 1942. And he lands the, at the uh, naval base at Anacostia and FDR is waiting for him, standing up uh, against the side of, leaning against the side of his limousine. And uh, they shake hands, they get in the car, they go back to um, uh, the White House, and they take a photograph of, of, which you can see if if you go to my Facebook page, William Martin, author on Facebook, you'll see that photograph. Uh, of the two of them standing on the White House lawn. And uh, the world is shocked when FDR's press secretary says, uh, Mr. Churchill is now in the White House with the president. Uh, He arrived. We cannot tell you how. uh, And he will be here for discussions. You can you can spread this. You can. And he told the news media, you can release this at 6 p.m., you know. And and that was a great morale booster yeah, for yeah. its day. And the next night, just one more yeah, story no, about those Yeah, no, this is great. Guys. This is a bonus chapter here. Yeah. Well, and the <clears> next <throat> the next night, uh, FDR decides to have a press conference, and he used to have the press conferences in the Oval Office, and a uh, hundred members of the press, uh, all of them vetted, all of them closely. Uh, studied for their security issues because I tried to write a scene in which the assassin tries to get in the door of the White House and mm. I couldn't quite make it work. Um, they're all in the White House uh, in the in the Oval Office and they're crowding in and crowding in and FDR says, well, before I take questions, uh, I want to, uh, I have a, um, I have a new a guest here that I'm sure you'd all like to see. And some wag in the back says, tell him to stand up. We can't see him. Because oh, <laughs> Churchill was about five foot five, five yeah. foot six. Yeah. And so Churchill, stogie in hand, 65 years old at this point, uh, got up 
on the chair he was sitting on and <laughs> stood on it and waved to everybody. And all of these cynical American newspaper men, uh, you know, who are a great, they were a great type that you read about and mm. see in the movies mm-hmm. and so on. They all start roaring. They all start cheering for the, the fact that Churchill is there in the president's presence. And then together they go on and a- answer a lot of questions about the conduct of the war. Christmas Eve is the next night, and the following night, uh, at at Christmas dinner, Churchill uh, excuses himself early. He's getting a little grouchy because FDR is dominating the conversation, and he likes to dominate the conversation. (laughs) There are all these wonderful stories about the two of them around a big dinner table and uh, trying to one-up one another. And um, he goes upstairs and composes a speech that he gives the next day to the United States Congress. It's another famous speech. Uh, It's the uh, speech in which he talks about the Nazis and Japanese and says, what kind of people do they think we are? Uh, And, you know, we will not back down. We will not be be scared or sullied by their their evil. And it it just brings the American, the, the joint session of Congress Absolutely uh, mm. to uh, a crescendo of, and you can hear. This is another speech you can hear on YouTube. Uh, it's a spectacular speech. That night, in the White House, as he's getting ready for bed, he tries to open a window, and as he opens the window, pulls it open, he gets a pain in his left arm yeah. and in his chest. Yeah. And he sends for his physician who was there staying on the second floor of the White House. He had a heart attack in the White House. They never told anybody. Uh, a couple, Two days later, he goes off to Canada, to Ottawa, gives another big speech, uh, and goes through the whole war before anybody ever learns that he actually had a heart attack. And lives to 92 years old That's or something right. like that. Without a stent. Without a stent. <laughs> I, when I was, while I was writing this book, I had a little heart attack. Oh, my got, goodness. And I got a stent. Um, May you live as long and longer than Churchill. Thank you. I don't smoke cigars. He smoked. <laughs> and he drank smoked, a lot of brandy. He smoked so many cigars that uh, they named one after him, as yeah, you know. Of course. And, and yeah, he did, he did drink a lot. There are a lot of things that, that I researched about Roosevelt and Churchill that don't make it into the book because— my main objective in writing a, a, a World War II thriller is to keep you with the main characters. Mm. And uh, th- my knowledge, though, of what's going on with Roosevelt and Churchill on each of the days of this novel is important to me in the writing of it. So uh, I found it uh, fascinating, hilarious, great story. Churchill arrives uh, in the, on uh, December 22nd, and on December 23rd, he gets up in the morning, uh, sleeps, he sleeps late. He's like a guy who likes to sleep late. FD, uh, FDR gets up early, very early, and uh, Churchill covers the, uh, the floor of the bedroom with newspapers, and he sees the White House butler going by, calls him over and says, we're friends, aren't we? 
We shall want to leave as friends. Yes, sir, says the butler. And Churchill then proceeds to give him an extended list of the things that he likes and doesn't like and wants and doesn't want. And this is on the in the, the upstairs. First, yeah. The first time he's there. Right, right. He's just there for 24 hours at the time. Yeah, I shall require a, a glass of sherry with my breakfast. I will like uh Two eggs. I will like some cold meats with mustard. Uh, you know, he gives he 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 gives that. He wants uh, a certain amount of alcohol at lunch. He shall require brandy and Paul Roger champagne in the evenings. And uh, of course, Mrs. Roosevelt is appalled by how much he drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, though, that when he attends FDR's cocktail hours every night. Uh, at at uh, six o'clock, FDR would gather a few friends, either in his in the Oval Office or upstairs in in the what was called the Oval Room, which is where he had his desk, and he had his his collection of uh, naval art, and his stamp collection, and FDR would mix martinis for everyone. Churchill couldn't stand martinis. <laughs> He'd drink one and then ask for scotch. <laughs> Oh, my God. This is so much, so much. And I I think it's relevant that you're doing all this research, getting a real charge out of it, and uh, knowing that it it adds to the backbone of the book. The book is rife with great information. But more important than that, this will keep you on the edge of your seat all the way to the end, even though we know Churchill and Roosevelt survived. But it's by a whisker, let's put it that way. Yes. Uh, It's called December... 41, William Martin's latest. It's a World War II thriller, and uh, I just loved it. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jordan. It's great. Great to be here. He's the very best. William Martin. Go to williammartinbooks.com. December 41. In my humble opinion, the best beach read of the summer. In wrapping up, we say thanks to our good friend Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to the team at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts and audiobooks and commercials, and find out more about all of this stuff at jordanrich.com. Till next time, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>